Well, please uh, remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Normally, we want to continue uh, our Sunday series at the camp out, but I wanted to finish 1 Thessalonians before the sabbatical, and so uh, we're going to look uh, the beginning of chapter 5 this week and the second part of chapter 5 uh, next week. Verses 1 through 11 is our passage uh, this morning. Beloved saints, the grass withers and the flower falls, but this, the word of our God, is eternal and it abides forever and it is ours to hear and to believe and to obey. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So, in the reading of our God's word, let us ask God his blessing uh, on our time in it today. Our gracious God, you who dwell within the pages of your word, we long to know you, and we long to see you revealed with your, from within your scriptures. So we ask now that you would open to us the beauty of your word, that you would open our eyes, and that you would open our hearts to behold the King of glory, and that you would give us the faith that we need to receive all that we hear from your word, we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. We've talked about discouragement that the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, those in Thessalonica uh, were enduring. And that brings up the question, what do those who are discouraged need? And I think obviously we know that they need uh, encouragement. They need encouragement. That's what you do when people are discouraged and we get that. <coughs> but the question we have to ask is, well, what does that look like? What does encouragement uh, for God's saints in this world look like? That's the hard question. But that's what the Apostle Paul is uh, trying to help us understand uh, in this passage, in the whole letter, but, but it really comes to a head here. And uh, he's trying to tell us, but also model for us what encouragement looks like for Christians when they're discouraged in this world. And I've been pointing out our entire way for, through this book that that those in Thessalonica were, were discouraged. They were dealing hard times, persecution. They had lost relationships. They had lost status. Uh, they had come to faith through Paul and Timothy and Silas's ministry. 
and that came at a cost. They had said no to uh, ease and to comfort. Uh, they had said no to the pagan practices that they had known since childhood that were a part of their life and their culture and their families. They had said no to their previous way of life, and they had placed their hope for eternal life in Jesus Christ. And they did so knowing full well what the cost would be for that decision. They knew that they would not be popular. Uh, they had watched how Paul and his co-workers had been treated. They had seen the animosity. They had seen how they had been lied about and mistreated and eventually driven out of town. And they knew very well that all those same things could happen to them. There was no illusion to, for them as they came to faith that, that, that following Jesus would make their lives easier and not harder. But in the midst of all of that, they saw the simple reality that Christianity offered a, a, a way to bring peace to their troubled consciences. And not only that, but Christianity alone offered a way of peace. Uh, they knew that they were sinners. They, they knew that they had not done what, what God requires. They knew that, that were they to stand before God on the basis of their own righteousness, their own obedience, their own law-keeping, that, that God's answer for them would be, as it would be for all of us, guilty, condemned, and that only judgment would await. They knew that that, that would be the answer if they tried to stand before God on their own. And so Christianity alone offers a way of salvation that is not dependent upon how good we are, but on how merciful God is. And so when Paul told them about Jesus Christ, the eternal God, the long-awaited and long-promised Messiah that the prophets foretold who came into this world and, and lived a perfect life, and yet was still willing to die and to suffer the judgment that we deserved in our place, that he was willing to be punished as if our sin was his own, and that in return he would he would grant to us his eternal blessed reward, his heavenly inheritance. When the Thessalonians heard this, they knew that that following Jesus was worth whatever cost it came with in this life. Because he alone could give peace to their troubled consciences. He alone could give them forgiveness for their sins. And so they believed and they placed their trust in Jesus and they followed him. But now, as time has passed and things have gotten harder and harder, they've grown tired. We've talked about this. And, and Paul's been gone for some time, unable to, to come and visit them. And, and many who, who followed Jesus have now died. We saw last week how they worried about their loved ones who had died following Jesus and taking up and enduring his cross had turned out to be a marathon, not a sprint. It's, it wasn't just a few months, but it's showing it's going to be a long time. And they're tired. They're overwhelmed. They're discouraged. They just want to cry. They just want it to all be done. And you know what, what those kinds of trials 
can do to you. You know what kinds of effects they have on your heart and on your mind, don't you? Your heart grows faint, like it's withering. And then your mind starts playing tricks on you. You replay conversations and you wonder uh, if you misunderstood something. You start searching for anything that will give you some semblance of comfort, some semblance of relief, anywhere you think it might be found. And so that's where the Thessalonians are. Their hearts and their minds are exhausted, playing tricks on them. And they're, and they're wondering, as so many have throughout history, okay, just tell us how much longer. Tell us how long we have to endure. When will Jesus come back and take us home? Are we at least getting close? And what will be the signs? What can we see that, that tell us that, that he's almost here? How much longer, Paul, do we have to hold on? How much longer do we have to endure? And those questions really aren't surprising, are they? Uh, because they're typical. Uh, that's what the disciples asked. Uh, right before Jesus ascended into heaven, after the resurrection, he spent you know 40 days with his disciples. And you remember what the last question they asked before he ascended into heaven was? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And you remember Jesus' response? Because they thought that, that that's what they need. Like, just tell us, is, is, are, are we through it? Let us know the roadmap. Uh, what are the, what are the signs and the seasons that, that will let us know that it's drawing near? And Jesus responded so simply. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. It's not for you to know times or seasons. That's not, I'm not going to tell you. And you can hear echoes of that, can't you, in Paul's opening verse, verse 1. Concerning the times and seasons, you have no need for someone to tell you what's going on. He's just paraphrasing what Jesus said as he ascended into heaven. And Paul's saying more than, God hasn't told us, so just stop asking. He's telling them, that's not what you need. Paul knows the, the reason for their questions. He knows their discouragement and he gets their exhaustion, but, but he also understands that even if they knew the when, the where, and the how of the last day, that that wouldn't help them. I mean, it's been at least 2,000 years. Paul said, well, it's going to be at least 2,000 years, guys. They want to go, okay, all's better now. That's not what they need. What they need is encouragement. What they need is to be strengthened, to walk the road. And so he's going to tell them what they need to know, and it's this. You don't need to worry about when the Lord is coming as long as you are ready for him to return. If you're ready at all times, then the when doesn't matter. It's only when you're not ready that the when becomes a scary question. And that's the point he's going to drive home in our passage. And so I want to start by looking at uh, how he describes the present age before Jesus returns and what characterizes it. After we've done that, we'll look at how he describes the age to which we belong and how that gives us an ability to greet the last day as a friend. And then the final thing will be, okay, how do we behave while we await that last day? in the return of our Lord. And so that's it, really. How does Paul describe the present age? 
How does he describe the age to come that actually defines us? And what does that mean for us as we live uh, in the present age awaiting the final day? So that's that's our, our plan for today. And some people uh, think that uh, they need uh, assurance as they look at the struggles of this world and, and the pains uh, that, that are going on and the different conflicts. They think that if what we need is the assurance that if we just do what the Lord calls us to do, then little by little things will get better. And, and that, that that this time of, of persecution uh, and, and mistreating Christians uh, it w- is soon to come to an end and there will be the seismic shift in power and uh, it's just around the corner, it's within our reach and just just obey, just persevere and things are going to get better. And, and how easy would it have been for Paul to tell those in Thessalonica as they were enduring all this pain and hardship, how easy would it have been for Paul to tell them something like that? Just do what the Lord calls you to do, and before long, you guys will have the seat of power. But but that's not how he describes life in this age, this present age. He employs the metaphor of night. Uh, and following the lead of the Old Testament prophets, he calls the last day, the day when, when the Lord returns, uh, uh, as the day of the Lord. This is a, an Old Testament title for the last day that the prophets use over and over. And Jesus talks about that. And using that image, he talks about the, the age that, that precedes the final day because as night, because night precedes day. And, uh, and he says that Jesus will re- return into the darkness of the night like a thief. He says, this age isn't going to get glorious. <laughs> it's not going to get bright. And Jesus will return into the day. No, he will return into the middle of the night. Things will look dark. And, and those who who mistreat Christians will, will think that they have peace and security. And everything will look great to them. And they will be caught completely unprepared. And he says that those who don't follow Jesus are of the night. They're of the present age and how things work. They live their lives in darkness, not knowing where they're headed. They're stumbling along. They don't see any any future, any direction. Uh, they spend their nights doing wicked things. They carouse. They get drunk. But the darkness is where they are most comfortable. Maybe you've known people like that. They sleep all day. They party all night. They're most comfortable at night. Because that's their time. That's the place where they have power, the place where they think they can hide. And he says in verse 2, it will still be nighttime when Jesus returns. There will be no warning, no gradual growing light of dawn to warn them that the Lord is about to return. Like labor pains coming upon a woman, they'll be caught off guard, asleep at their post, as it were. And by itself, that could sound incredibly discouraging to the Christians in Thessalonica. <laughs> yep, life's rough. It's going to get rougher. Pat them on the back. But that's not where Paul stops. He then tells them, But you brothers are not in darkness for the day to surprise you like a thief. Because you are all children of light, children of the day. And, and there, there in verse 5, uh, when he says the day, he doesn't simply mean daytime. He means your children of the same day as he mentioned in verse 2, the day of the Lord. 
That's your day. That's the day you long for. That's the day to which you belong. Uh, that's the beginning of the new creation. And you belong to the new creation. That's the age to which you belong. And so what he's saying to them is, even though you are in the present darkness, you are not of the present darkness. You belong to the age to come. And, and therefore, even in the darkness, you walk according to its light. Because it defines you. You're not stumbling around. You know what's coming. And you know who's coming. You might not know when, but you know that he is coming. And that's everything. And you, so you know how it all ends. So, so you won't be caught by surprise, verse 4. Because we know what the end will look like. And that gives us the light we need not to stumble around in the present darkness. But it's more than that. Because we belong to the day, the age to come, we don't need to fear it. For some, it will come like an intruder, like an unwelcome thief. For those, it will be characterized by judgment and wrath. They'll stand before God, required to give an account of everything they've done, every word they've spoken, and every thought they've had. And because they don't belong to that day, it will not come as a friend. If you're most comfortable at night, (laughs) dawn is the scariest thing. If you're most comfortable at day, dawn is the most welcome friend. And for those who belong to the night, when the day comes, that will signal an end to their time of comfort and their time of power. Because their domain is in the night. And so in a very real sense, when the last day dawns, those who belong to the present age will experience the greatest hangover the world has ever known. but not us. Because that's not our destiny. Look at verses 9 and 10. God has, hasn't appointed for us wrath on that day, but salvation. That's what he's appointed. Salvation on that day. And then he goes on to say how? Through our Lord Jesus, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. This is the Christian hope. Not that we are less sinful. Not that our actions and our words and our thoughts have been wholly pure or even more pure. Not that we are any less deserving of wrath and judgment than anyone else. Our hope is that, is that Jesus has already suffered the wrath we deserve in our place. So, so that when he died, that's what he was doing. So, so Jesus says in John 5, he says this, Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. No judgment awaits. No wrath awaits you on the last day if you belong to Jesus Christ. This is what awaits those who put their faith in Jesus. Whether they die before he returns or are still alive when he returns, All that matters is what they have done with him. Have they surrendered, bowed their knee, and placed their hope in him? Those who do 
belong to the one to whom the day belongs. It is, after all, the day of the Lord. It's his day. And if you belong to the Lord, that day belongs to you as well. And you will welcome it as a long-awaited friend. It will not come as a shock of terror. It will truly be the most welcome sight you have ever seen in your life. Because it's your day. You belong to it. That's why verse 5 calls us children of the day. We are those who belong to it. And that means we're watching and we're waiting for it to come. Just as you might long for the morning to dawn so that you can see clearly, we are always watching for the Lord to come. So the question is, what should we be doing while we're waiting for Jesus? There's nothing we can do to hasten that day. Sorry, you can't make it come sooner. And there's nothing you can do to make the night look like day, to make it comfortable. So what do we do? Paul tells them, verses 6 and 8, to stay sober and stay awake. And by awake, Paul means alert. He doesn't mean never go to sleep. Because if Jesus returns while you're sleeping, you're in trouble. That's not what he's saying. Please get your sleep. You're you're more pleasant to be around when you do. Uh, He means alert. He knows the temptation that the longer you wait the easier it is to start thinking, ah, he's never going to come back. And to get distracted. And to start thinking, I'll, I'll focus on other things for now, you know, making money and having fun. And I'll focus on Jesus later. How many young adults fall into that? When I, when I get married and have kids, I'll, I'll, I'll get serious about church and God again. But right now, I'm going to sow my wild oats. I'm going to have some fun. That's the point of the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. There were five foolish virgins and five wise virgins. The five that were wise prepared for the bridegroom to arrive at any time. And he arrived in the middle of the night without warning. And it was too late for the foolish virgins to get ready and to put things in order. And he closed that parable with this. Watch therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour that he will come. And the point is, if you're always ready, you're never unprepared. This is what Paul means when he says, stay awake. Be alert, be prepared, live knowing that the Lord could return at any minute or your life could end at any minute. And either way, you're prepared. Don't put off preparing for his return until tomorrow, because you have no guarantee that he won't return before then. By sober, he means something different. So that's awake. Awake is to be alert. What does sober mean? Uh, To be sober is to be calm and rational. He's warning against excessive concern over when or rash conduct while you you wait. Uh, To put it bluntly, to be sober is, is, is the apostolic way of saying, don't freak out. Don't obsess about when. 
Don't do something impulsive that you think will fix everything. Slow and steady. Stay the course. Perseverance. Patience. Be sober-minded. And we know how hard that is. We wait as long as we think we can, and then we are always tempted to take matters into our own hands. Uh, either by trying to hasten the day or trying to make the night look like day. Trying to uh, make heaven on earth before the Lord does. That's not what we need. Which brings us back to where we began. What do we need in the midst of discouragement? Paul tells us that it's not teaching about when and how Jesus will return. This is what it says, verse 1, that's not what you need. All he's chosen to tell us is that he will return. We don't need new teaching, new information, or secret knowledge, or a plan to fix the world and make the night look like day. What we need is encouragement, verses 9, I'm sorry, verse 11 tells us that. Uh, we need to build each other up and encourage one another. And the way we do that is not by giving each other some new, uh, something new or some hollow promise about better days ahead. We do it by, by reminding each other not what we might have one day, but what we have already today. We have Jesus. The Lord of the last day. We have the one who's in charge of all things and he's coming to set all things right. And if we belong to him, we belong to his day and we have no need to fear it. See, the enemy doesn't want you to be encouraged. One of the ways enemies conquer is not just brute force, but psychological warfare. To demoralize the enemy. They're easier to conquer. And so the enemy, Satan, wants you to be beat down, despairing, depressed, and discouraged. He will assault your mind with falsehoods. He'll tell you that if Jesus hasn't come back for 2,000 years, he probably never will. He'll assault your heart, telling you that, that your faith is in vain, that it's misplaced, and and that you're still in your guilt, in your shame. And that only judgment could await you on the last day. And that you should just look for refuge in a bottle and try to drown your sorrows. And so how do you guard your hearts? And how do you guard your minds from the assault of the enemy? That's the question. And that's what verse 8 is all about. Paul offers two pieces of armor against the enemy's assault. A breastplate to guard your heart and a helmet to guard your mind. So what's the breastplate? What guards your heart from discouragement? He says it's faith and love. The breastplate of faith and love. Um, these are the things that Paul addressed in chapter uh, 1, 2, 3, in the first half of chapter 4. And he's going to return to love a little bit in our passage next week. He reminded them of who Jesus is and all that he did to save us. He reminded them of, of all that Paul and his co-workers came uh, to share, uh, all they endured as they, they came to share the great news with the Thessalonians at a great cost to themselves. 
And, and he even shared with them and reminded with them of, of how the Thessalonians showed genuine faith by what they were willing to endure and the love that they showed to others, even though it meant their lives would be harder. In other words, he says, I saw in your love how your faith changed you, changed you, and so I know your faith is genuine. And I know that you belong to Jesus. I know that you are children of the day. And then he says, so he encourages them to show love all the more. Hearts focused on love aren't consumed by the darkness. And so faith and love will guard your hearts against the enemy. That's the breastplate. But what about their minds? That's what the helmet is about. Specifically, he says, the helmet is our hope of salvation. Specifically, he's thinking of the last day and the confidence that Jesus will come to snatch us out of judgment and take us to be home with him. And so you have to keep the reality of the last day ever in your minds. And if you do, it will guard your minds like a helmet against the lies of the enemy who will constantly tell you, it's not worth it, give up, throw in the towel. If you want to survive the night, you have to remember that morning is coming. And it's always darkest right before the dawn. Beloved, if if you trust in Jesus Christ, then you are children of the day and you belong to the age to come. And it is coming. So don't give up. Don't grow discouraged. Your Savior's coming. But that means that we need each other. Have you ever tried to encourage yourself? <laughs> it can be pretty tough. We need each other to remind us that we are children of the day. And that's why fellowship and, and gathering together for worship are so important. Because it's here that we remind each other who we are, where we are headed, and how we will greet that day when it comes. That reality is driven home to us this morning through the Lord's Supper. First uh, Corinthians says this, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And then it says this, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, the Lord's Supper holds before us uh, the death uh, of Jesus, that he was willing to endure to save us, not just to strengthen our faith and our hope, but our, our love as well, to, to show us that, that he has not just saved us out of the world, but he's saved us into a body and into a family. It tells us to love as we have been loved, to seek each other's good, and to encourage one another. And so I want to end uh, where we began the service. I'm going to read to you again our call to worship and see if it rings a little bit louder in your ears the second time. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. 
Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so let us come to the Lord's table and break bread together. And as we do so, may we encourage one another in our mutual hope uh, in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that we don't need to fear the last day because we are children of the day. We thank you for sending Jesus to deliver us from wrath, from darkness, and from the night. And we thank you that we don't need to grow discouraged because you guard our hearts in faith and love, and you guard our minds in the hope of the resurrection. Teach us to love one another and to encourage one another even more as we see that day approaching, we pray. Through Christ our Savior. Amen.